Hi, this is Steve Thomas, pastor of the First Baptist Church at Delray Beach. Welcome to our podcast. We study God's Word to apply it to our lives in order to make a difference in this life and in eternity. We hope you enjoy this message. We cry out, we cry out. Well, good morning. We are going through the book of Acts and a series on Acts, and we find ourselves today in Acts chapter 3. So if you want to pull up Acts chapter 3 on your phone, maybe you brought a hard copy. I respect that. If you're still old school like that, we're going to be in Acts chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 10, and I will go ahead and read for us now. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. The Word of the Lord says this, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple for the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. A man who was lame from birth was being carried there. He was placed each day at the temple gate called Beautiful so that he could beg from those entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to enter the temple, he asked for money. Peter, along with John, looked straight at him and said, Look at us. So he turned to them, expecting to get something from them. Peter said, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. Then taking him by the right hand, he raised him up. And at once his feet and ankles became strong. So he jumped up and started to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking, leaping and praising God. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. In the name of Jesus Christ. You believe in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth? What does a name mean? What does it mean in the name of something? It means power. A name is power. A name is authority. It's the kind of power that only that name has. Only that name can wield. And there are many names in the world. There are many powers in this world that people draw upon. The name of Buddha has power. The name of Muhammad has power. The name of science has power. And many invoke the power of those names. But I'm talking about the name above all names. I'm talking about the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Alpha and Omega, the one who has power over sickness, the one who has power over broken bones and lame feet and blind eyes, the one who has power over sin and over Satan and over angels and demons, and he has power over life and death. 
the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth? Do you believe in that name? Do you believe in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth? I pray that you do. I pray that your life is full of that power. That you walk in the name of Jesus Christ every day. That your home where you live with your family or your roommates or even by yourself, that that home is full of the power of Jesus Christ because when you live by the name of Jesus Christ, you experience his power. You experience divine power in the name of Jesus. And our story here in the book of Acts chapter 3 gives us a little glimpse of just how powerful Jesus is. It's just a small taste of his omnipotence. That's a big word, omnipotence. He's all-powerful. He's almighty. But if you catch a glimpse of this power, if you have the eyes to see and the ears to hear, then whatever names you're holding up to at this point will be nothing to you. You'll drop those names so fast because you have met the power of the Son of God. And I pray you have those eyes to see and those ears to hear. When you read the Bible, you are entering the presence of God. Do you believe that? You might not feel it. I'm not saying you feel like you're in the presence of God every time you open the Bible, but you are. You are in a special way. Yes, God's everywhere. He's here right now. But when you read the Bible, God is present. Also, when you read the Bible, you're going back in time. Let me tell you what I mean by that. The Bible is a very old book. 2,000 years ago, longer than that, if you read Genesis. These are thousands and thousands of years old. They were written for real people back then by real people, in a certain circumstance. They had a different way of life, a different way of thinking about things. The Bible was meant for those original readers, just like it was meant for us thousands of years later. So if we dig in a little bit into their way of life and kind of what it was like to be like a person living in the ancient world, we actually get more out of our Bibles. So let me just throw out a few things for us to think about. What was it like to live in first century Palestine as a cripple, as a lame person who can't walk? So first, just surviving birth is a miracle back then. Close to one out of three children did not survive the first four weeks of birth after they were born. That's super sad. That's crazy. We can't imagine that today. And if you survived childbirth and you had a normal life, you could expect to live to be maybe your late 40s, early 50s. It's average life. I mean, people live longer than that, but most, that was average for your normal person. Today, it's like, what, 78, 79? And maybe older for the women a little bit. Maybe it's like 81 or something like that. It's double today than it was back then. You could live two lifetimes today. 
Now, just think about being sick or injured. I mean, it was a hazardous world in ancient Palestine. There's this cool, like, lecture series on Audible. I don't know if you've ever heard of Audible. But it's, the series is called The Other Side of History. And it looks at what it's like to be a normal person, you know, maybe a Christian in ancient Rome or, you know, a, a Greek slave in ancient Greece or like a medieval woman in like Britain. Like these, cool, like just random normal scenarios of these people. Because we hear about the famous people. We don't know what it was like to be just a typical person in that time. Well, there's one whole section on being disabled. What was it like to be disabled back then? Today, it's estimated that 10% of our population are disabled. That's something like 500 plus million people. So it's probably at least 10% of the ancient world were disabled, but their life was a lot harder than ours today. First, they didn't have the medical care that we have. So if you broke your arm, you broke your leg, you didn't get the proper treatment, you probably were going to lose a lot of function in that arm or leg. And you might, especially if you were older and you hurt yourself, they didn't have the proper medical care. Here's something even more scary to think about. Today, if you broke your leg, especially if it was very severe, like a compound fracture, it's scary, but they take you to the hospital, they fix you up, they put a cast on it, everyone signs the cast, you get a special temporary parking permit, you can park in the front of Walmart, you can take the elevator, Right? We have ways of life that helps you navigate until you get back on your feet. They didn't have that back then. And even scarier, you had 50-50 chance of living if you had a compound fracture in your leg. Just think how scary it would be just to climb a wall, right? Just to climb a ladder like, I better not fall or it won't go well for me. That's scary. But the guy in our story, he was born lame. Right? He was born this way. He was born with what we would call a disability or birth defect. So let's think about that. That was very common as well, to be born blind or born with some kind of defect just due to malnourishment and, and disease and things like that. The Greeks and Romans um, considered people born that way just pretty much worthless. And actually, they had this terrible practice. It's called child exposure, and it's a form of infanticide. And what they would do is they would decide if the child was born and there was something wrong with it, they were going to leave it out in the elements and just let it die. And a lot of babies died that way in the ancient world. Which tells me there's a lot of babies in heaven. A lot of babies in heaven that we won't even know. That's a terrible thing they would practice just because there was something wrong with the child. Now, if you were Jewish, um, let's think about how they thought about the disabled. Well, they considered people with a disability, or especially they're born that way, that they... Not all of them, obviously, but a lot of them believe that they were cursed by God. That someone sinned in their family. Great-grandpa did something wrong, so I'm suffering from it today because I'm blind. That's how they treated people. At the very least, they would consider you un unclean. Unclean. And you shouldn't approach God that way. So a lot of them think you shouldn't even go into the temple if you had something wrong with you. And the temple, according to the, the Jewish religion, was the most important place on earth. It's the most important place. God was there. That's where the sacrifices were happening. That's where you went to bring your sacrifices and worship God. It's the most important place. It's not like that today for us. We don't think of a certain place as super holy. It's wherever God's people are that together, right? That's the temple. 
And that's true, right? That's because of Christ's coming. Now his body is a temple. But back then, it was that one place in Jerusalem. And I want you just to make sure I'm communicating this clearly. It was hard to live back then, very hard, if you were disabled. And also, there was a spiritual element, too. People judged you as less than and not worthy to go before God. So it must have been very difficult for the man in our story. All right, so let's just walk through our text now that we have that in our head. So let's go to verse 1 again and walk through the 10 verses. So verse 1 of chapter 3. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple for the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Peter and John. This is actually normal. They go to the temple every day. Um, If you look back in chapter 2, verse 46, 46, it says that, All the Christians were going to the temple every day. So this is a normal day for John John and Peter. A little bit about Peter and John, just just to help us refresh our memories. They used to fish together before Jesus came on the scene. They were in the fishing business together. And Jesus comes up and he calls them to be his disciples. So they join his group of disciples and they learn for three years the way of Jesus Christ. Then Jesus goes to the cross, he dies, he raises from the dead, he meets with them for 40 days, and he tells them, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, as Acts 1-8, it's going to give you power, so you can be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So in chapter 2, Peter has this amazing sermon, 3,000 people are saved, and now daily they're meeting as Christians, going to the temple and in each other's homes. Sometime after that, after Pentecost, we don't know when this story takes place. They're on their way to the temple to attend the afternoon prayer. Like I said, the temple's very important. It's the most important holy place to be, and there's daily sacrifices. The priests are there sacrificing, and that's when the people would come to pray. So 3 p.m. means the evening sacrifice, and a lot of faithful Jews are going to be there. We have a very individualistic religion today in America. So when we think of prayer, we don't think of corporate prayer usually. We just think of a personal private prayer, which is good. You, you need to have a private prayer. But back then, they went to the temple every day to pray. Right? We have pray first once a month, right? And that's 12 times a year if we don't miss a month. That sounds like a lot to a lot of people. But these guys went every single day. pretty amazing. So verse 2 says, a man was lame from birth, and he was being carried there. He was placed each day at the temple gate called Beautiful, so that he could beg from those entering the temple. So yeah, this guy was born from lame from birth, and someone, his family or friends, would bring him to the temple at this time every day to beg. That's all he could do. That was his only, like, option to make money, was to beg. And he knew, hey, if I went at this time, at this place, a lot of faithful Jews will be entering this temple because they're going to pray, and they're going to be in a special, an especially giving mood because it's an act of piety to give money to the needy. So he's going to get a lot of money this way. And, you know, that's great. I'm sure it, apparently it's working for him because he comes here every day. So he positioned himself right there. 
In verse 3, it says, When he saw Peter and John about to enter the temple, he asked for money. Peter, along with John, looked straight at him and said, Look at us. So he turned to them, expecting to get something from them. Now, remember, Peter and John have been with Jesus for three years, and they've seen everything, they learned everything from him. So the way they see the disabled, the way they see the crippled, the way they see the deformed, has been shaped by Jesus, has been shaped by his ministry. So just one example. This, let's go flashback to John chapter 9, just the first three verses. This was earlier in Jesus' ministry. And it says this, As he, meaning Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. So another guy is disabled from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So they asked the question, Why is he blind? Like, whose fault is it? Who sinned? And Jesus said, It's not that. You're thinking the wrong way. It's that the works of God might be displayed in him, and then Jesus heals that man. You don't forget that. If you're there, if you're a disciple and you see that, that changes your perspective. And so, when they look at this man at this temple, they don't see someone cursed. They don't see someone unworthy of God. They see an opportunity to display the power of Jesus. What do you see when you look at someone disabled? What do you see when you look at someone deformed and ostracized in some way from our community because something's wrong with them physically or mentally? Are they a nuisance? Are they in your way? Do you judge them? Who has shaped your views of the deformed and the disabled? I pray it's Jesus. I pray it's Jesus and you see them as an opportunity to display the power of Jesus. Look at us, is what they said to him. Look at us. And they're just staring at this guy. And he looks up at them and He's thinking he's about to get some money. And then Peter says in verse 6, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. Peter uses a very specific name. He could have said in the name of God, right? He could have said in the name of Jesus. But he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, of Nazareth. A real person who lived in a real place, in a real time. This Jesus was the first century Jewish man who grew up in a small town called Nazareth. That was under Roman rule. And this Jesus, he traveled all over Palestine and he spread the message of the kingdom of God. And he said, I am the Son of God. And he said, I am bringing in the kingdom of God. And he performed miracles. He raised people from the dead. He cured diseases. He cast out demons to demonstrate his power. 
and then he was killed by the Romans. But that was part of God's plan as well because he sacrificed himself for the sins of the world and he came back alive. He resurrected from the dead and not just any old resurrection, he will never die again. He's in a perfect state and he will come again to earth and he will judge the living and the dead. He will judge everyone. We must stand and give an account to him. So when Peter says Jesus Christ of Nazareth, that's who he's talking about. That's who he means. And then what does he do? He takes him by the right hand verse 7. And he raised him up. And at once, his feet and ankles became strong. And so he jumped up and started to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. This guy's excited. He's jumped. It says he's jumped twice. He jumps and leaps. And he enters the temple, leaping, praising God. This is better than silver and gold. This is better than he could ask for. He's healed. Can you imagine that? Being lame your whole life, can't walk, having people judge you and your family and thinking low of you and yet you're not pure enough to enter God's presence. Next thing you know, if you're that kind of person thinking that, you walk in the temple and then you look to your right and that guy's standing right there. That's amazing. This guy's experienced the power of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Have you ever been miraculously healed? Well, first, do you believe in miracles? I believe in miracles. Um, I broke my foot once in high school playing football. And they put a boot on me, and I couldn't play. I was out the whole season. And I was very disappointed. And it healed over time. And now it's better. Sort of. That's not a healing. That's not a miracle. Um, a, few, a few months ago, I have a crown. And it fell out. And it's kind of embarrassing, but also it kind of, kind of hurts. Like, it's not good. Like, so I had to find a dentist the day of because I had an event that night. Luckily, someone was there, and they were able to put the crown back in, and everything's great. I have a great smile again. I'm not embarrassed to, open, to show my teeth. That's not a healing. Right? That's closer than we've ever been uh, in man's power, but that doesn't count. It is something to be thankful for and grateful, and I'm very grateful for modern medicine. I mean, some of us here, we have aches and pains. You probably walked in this You woke up this morning, and your back was a little stiff. Uh, maybe there's other things going on. Some people here are actually disabled. I mean, I think of Johnny Opria. He's not here today, but man, I love Johnny. He's always happy to be here. He's always greeting people out front, but he's had some back surgeries recently. And every time I see him, I'm like, I feel like he's in a different cast, you know, in a different part. Um, but he's a happy guy. And I think, I think the hospital is helping him. I think the doctor is helping him. And he's seeing a lot of progress. But he would sit there and tell you he hasn't had a miraculous healing like this guy, right? But maybe you've seen it. Maybe you've prayed for it. I, I, I think that happens. But, but the point I'm making is that modern medicine or any other power we can think of can do a little bit. It can get you so far. 
but it's not a perfect or a permanent fix. But in the name of Jesus Christ, of Nazareth, you can have perfect healing. You believe that? I'm not saying it's going to happen today. I'm not saying it's going to happen in this lifetime. You might experience some miracles, but perfect healing? I am saying this, though, that the power of Jesus will heal you and restore you completely when he comes back. That's part of our salvation. It's not just forgiveness of sins. That's obviously incredibly important, but it's restoration of the world, including our bodies that fail us all the time. No other name can do that. You might be crippled when he comes back. You might be blind. You might be dead, and he will come back and say, get up and walk. And you'll be in a perfect body. We know from the Old Testament, the first couple chapters of Genesis, that what's wrong with this world? Why are people born deformed? Why do we have difficulties in our bodies? It's because of sin. Adam and Eve sinned. And they brought in a curse to this world, and that's why people suffer and die. But we also know from the Old Testament that there will, be, there will come a day of restoration. All the bad will be replaced with good. All the brokenness will be replaced with wholeness. The Bible calls it the new heavens and the new earth. And God will bring it into history. God will reverse the terrible things in this world, and God will save his people. I just want to reach Isaiah chapter 35. I love this chapter. It's a beautiful prophecy poem about the future restoration. All the bad things are turned into good. Let's just read it together. It's ten verses. It says this, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way, and I love this part, even if they are fools, they will not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. it, shall, it they shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and sighing shall flee away. That's coming. And this man who was lame. Who can now leap like a deer. He leaps into the temple. He leaps into Zion. 
singing and worshiping and praising God. You know what miracles are for in the Bible? You know why they happen in the Gospels in the book of Acts? Not just because there's something cool. They are glimpses of the future day of restoration. The kingdom of God is coming. When I was a kid, me and my brothers would go to the grocery store, and there was always this lady, I don't even know her name, but she would have these samples of food. And I'd go up there and ask for one, and of course it had like a toothpick in it, you know, it was like a pickle or something, I don't know what they would do. You taste it, and it was delicious, and you'd go, and you'd come back, and you ask for more. You can't have any more. It's a sample. It's what a sample is. You can only have a little taste, but hey, you are left wanting more. You see a miracle. You hear a miracle. You're left wanting more. Some, another way to think about miracles, I like movies. I love movies. And I like going to the movies, and I love watching the trailers of the movies coming down in the future. Gets me excited. I'm like, I can't wait till that movie comes out. But the trailer's not the movie. It gets me excited about what's to come, but it's not the whole thing. That's what a miracle is. It's a little glimpse. It's a little taste of the future. And here's the point of this passage. This restoration only comes through the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That's the point. They know their Old Testament. They know Isaiah 35 about the restoration. And now they hear that it's through the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that restoration comes. Final two verses here. All the people saw him walking and praising God. And they recognized that he was the one who used to sit and beg at the beautiful gate of the temple. So they were filled with awe and astonishment at what happened to him. This is their response. They're amazed. They're like, that's the guy that I see begging every day. Now he's walking. That's amazing. And we'll see later on in this chapter, in a a future sermon, a lot of them became Christians. A lot of them become Christians. Now we know just seeing a miracle isn't enough to make you a Christian. The Pharisees saw Jesus do all kinds of stuff, and they aren't Christians. But miracles or some kind of divine encounter testifies to the truth of the message. Let me just say it like this. You know your non-Christian friends you've been praying for? What they need more than the best argument you can come up with? What they need more than the best book or the best lecture you can find on YouTube and send them to convince them something is a divine encounter with Jesus Christ of Nazareth. They need a supernatural experience. I'm not saying it looks like the miracle we read here, but there is something that we can't do that only God can do. That's what they need. That's what you need to convince you your heart, that it's real. You need an experience with the supernatural. And if you haven't had that, I don't know how you're going to make it the rest of your life, believing in Jesus. If you've never experienced his power. I'm starting to realize two things about the power of Jesus and miracles when you read the book of Acts. First, it only comes when you're living faithfully 
in obedience to him. If you're not walking in obedience with Jesus, you're very, very small chance you're going to see great things. And you're like, I haven't seen anything in a while. And I'm just, you know, small things. If you haven't seen that, well, maybe you should open up your eyes. There's probably some stuff going on you just haven't seen, right? But if you haven't, are you stepping out in faith? Are you blessing? I hear something I learned, like I'm really trying to do this. I'm not going to sit there and say, get up and walk. I, don't, I actually don't think that's in my power. I think that was a lot of it was the apostles that could do that. But I can bless people when I talk to them. May God bless you today, and you know, maybe I'm in a grocery store, and he brings you 100 customers today. You know? May God bless your children as they go to college. Like Say blessings and, uh, in the name of Jesus to people. Why not? Let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. And maybe God uses that. Maybe you should try that. But I'm starting to see that if you want to see the power of God, you need to be living faithfully in a church, in a Christian community, in obedience to Jesus. And the second thing, you don't get miracles without suffering. Read the book of Acts. A lot of miracles. A lot of persecution. We'll see Stephen, the first martyr, We'll hear of James. we hear of Paul. God, Jesus says to Paul, when he calls him, he's like, I'm going to show you just how much you have to suffer for me. But that's for future sermons. I don't know why those go together. A mighty acts of God in suffering. I think Jesus, when he's moving, Satan's moving too. That's what I think's going on. We know who wins that game. But for now, I pray that you have an encounter with Jesus Christ in a divine and profound way, and that God, through you, will impact your friends and family that you know need a divine encounter with Jesus Christ. Let me close this in prayer. Thanks for joining us today. If you'd like to support this ministry, go to our website at fbcdelray.com. Also, click the share button so you can share this message with a friend or someone in need as we seek to know Jesus, to know others, and to make him known. We cry out, we cry out.